Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. You're right, Mark. Yes, I, and you're quite right, Simon. I do look fabulous. What's up, what's up? How come you look so fabulous? I'm wearing a suit. Well, I always wear a suit, but I'm wearing that's a suit. True. I've had a suit made, and um, I've never had a suit made before. And that's, actually, that's not true. That's not, no, I'm lying. I did many years ago when Jack Geach used to be around in, in Harrow, used to make all the, what you would call the shawaddy-waddy suits. Well, you are wearing, it's a little bit of a shawaddy-waddy suit. Not a shawaddy-waddy suit. It's a, it's a rocking suit. Okay, shawaddy-waddy. Shana-na. Shana-na, I will take very, very... But shawaddy-waddy look pretty stylish. They, they, they Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing nothing against the Shawads because they were the first band that I saw live at the Villa Marina in the Isle of Man in 1974, mm-hmm. I think. And I thought they were, you know, rocking and hot. But then I was 11 or 10. And then there was a period later on when you suddenly realised that you, you weren't really allowed to like Shawaddy Waddy because they... Well, for a start, because of Dave Bartram's hair. Well, you know... Which was massively non... He had hair like David Cassidy. But they, were, they could be... An, yeah, an entry point into the world of rockabilly. Yeah, they well, mm, mm. well, in my case, they probably were. And then, but then later on, they sort of reinvented themselves as a sort of harder and then more drain-piped uh, wearing uh, wearing band. Yeah, suit- nowadays, nowadays they're still touring. But I think I may be wrong about this. I think Dave Bartram is now the manager. And I think, yeah, I think he's still involved. Like that. Anyway, but I think yeah. he's not. He doesn't sing with them anymore. I think he's the manager now. I think that it's a bit like the suits I had for TV. I had crushed Can I just velvet. Say it's nothing like the suits you had for TV. I had some crushed velvet. I know, and that's why it's nothing like the suits you had for TV. This but, is dark and understated, and it's just got a little. Yeah. Thin, and I'm feeling. I'm feeling a million. Well, dollars. you look you, a million dollars. Thank of you. Course. And the suits that you had for TV looked like Louis the Fourteenth. It was it, quite, but that's quite a good look. It was sort of frock coaty, wasn't it? Because he had, had very long. They're all frock coats. Yeah. They were very nice. Very long things. And they were. It was just a, a hint of crushed velvet. I'm going to wear one next week. And oh, please we, do. And we can... Um, can we do a fashion show? No, we're not going to do a fashion show. You can do your hair like you used to do. I am just... Oh, I saw... I've got a new shirt on. I, it's great. It looks like a... Blue shirt. Yeah, exactly. Big deal. Somebody showed me a photograph of you presenting Top of the Pops in what must have been its sort of, you know, its pop-tastic heyday. And your hair, you look like... Um, Someone out of Bros. No, you look like the lead singer of The Alarm. Mike you, Peters. Yeah, Mike Peters. Yeah. You've got like the full head tree going on. It's like, the, it's really... No, so it's, it'll be like late 90s. No, oh, was that what it was? Yeah, I think so. I stepped back in amazement. I was slightly shocked at how much, how, not only how much hair you'd, you had, but how much teasing you'd done to it. I have the same amount of hair no, now. No, I know, I know, I know, but, no, but now you wear your hair short and now it looks great and it looks kind of, you know, it's like kind of <laughs> cropped for action and all the rest of it, you know. But it was, honestly, That's it was this, this full head tree arrangement. I don't know what a head tree actually is. Yeah, you know exactly what a head tree is. It's the, big hair. No, yeah, but no, but it's specific, everybody, isn't it? Everybody, it's big hair up at the top and then thing down the sides. And I, I, I suspected that if you turn around, there would have been a mullet. Everybody wanted that. Did you have 90s. a mullet? No, I didn't have a mullet. You looked, you looked from the front, you looked like you probably had a mullet. Well, you've still got a quiff, so, you know. No, no, I know, but I've never had a mullet. Not yet. My hair's been like this since forever. Since 1921. <laughs> That's exactly. Anyway, right. should we talk film? Go ahead, if or you feel it's absolutely necessary. Fashion and hair. I'll just carry on looking fabulous for the radio viewers. 
Yeah. My, my internet, my tie, is the colour of the Chrysler building, and if, I'm very pleased with that. If well. you're going to communicate with the show in the next sort of seven days, it would probably please Mark enormously if you just say something like, yes, Mark. You, you look fabulous. You do look fabulous. It would just kind of... Yeah, I think he just needs to hear that every now and again. By the way, Mark, you're looking great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Richard Banks is in Winchester. Uh, dear Mise en scène and Mise Congeniality. See, it's quite good. <laughs> Very good. Long-term listener, NCG nook lurker, and a passionate evangelist for your church. I was hoping that the team that brought us coma awakenings, child naming advices and <laughs> wedding proposals might turn their hand to workplace valedictions. Do you remember when this was a film programme? No. In that spirit, could you please give a special what's up and a shut oh shut up butt word? Can you do that? Shut up, but no, I can't actually do it. Shut up, butler. I haven't done it for such a long time. I've almost forgotten how to do it's it. It's butt word anyway, not butler. No, I know, but I know, but, but the whole point was I never I never said right, it. We'll do we'll do this paragraph again. Fine. In that spirit, would you give a special what's up and a shut up butt word? To my friend and colonial commoner, Jessica, who's going to be listening to your podcast as she endures a 17-hour journey on the auto train from Miami to Washington, D.C. What's the auto train? To avoid, and, then she, and then Richard writes, to avoid the need for a man to look it up on a computer, the auto mm-hmm. train is apparently a train that carries cars, a bit like Le Shuttle. Oh, I see, auto, okay. not auto, as in it's an automatic it's train. An auto it's an auto train. train. Although we work on opposite sides of the Atlantic, we've been sharing wittertainment-related asides during work meetings for the past two and a half years since I introduced her to your witterings. Jess has now decided to take some time away from work to raise her young family. She is an inspirational colleague and friend whose quiet wisdom and countenance will be sorely missed. If you could wish her every happiness, I know that would put a big smile on her face. Thanks, of course, to Jason, all members of Fairport, especially super sub Matt Pegg, son of Dave, with whom I was briefly at school in Cropredy. In the seventies, briefly at school in Cropperty in the seventies, but Cropperty is a festival. Is it a school as well? Hey, are you looking at me? Anyway, if Fairport Convention ran a school, but maybe uh, Cropperty must be a place, mustn't it? Yeah. Well, it must be because it's the field that it's in. I mean, you've been. We both did a Cropperty festival. We did a show from there. That's true. I remember, and I went. We went there with. I'm not. I'm not. Lucy, we did. We We did did do a show. We did a show from there. We did a show from there, and arrived with. I persuaded my then teenage daughter uh, to come along. And I said, you know, it'll be, it'll be, oh, yeah, it'll, I this. it'll be cool. And the first thing we saw was a field of mobility scooters. And she thought, can I go home now? Because this yes. is not the kind of festival. But the I want next to go thing to. she saw was the folk singer with the with the big arms. You know, the very very handsome guy. Yeah, what's he called? Cat Stevens. No, not Cat Stevens. Paul Simon. James Taylor. Right, you're not even trying. Tom Paxton. N- no, there's a British folk singer. He was really famous, really, really famous, and you know him, and you interviewed him, and he's got these. He looks like a. He looks. He's very, very built, very ripped. It's a village in a civil parish in Oxfordshire. I heard. Properly. I heard Robin and saying it in your. In your. I've got ear, special so. leaky headphones, so everyone. everyone in fact, if Robin hear. now talk, Robin say something. And again. There you go. So that's that's the voice of Robin. Robin, what was the name of the very, very ripped folk singer who was playing at Cropperty that time with the tight T-shirt? Okay, he's claiming he wasn't there. Anyway, we'll get it'll it'll come back. He's to really it. famous. He's really famous. Bob Dylan, that's it. Joan Baez, <laughs> Carol King. Oh, I was, no! I'm in the no, middle of an email. I'll you be quick. I'll just be quick. Carol King at, was great. I was at Carol King. Yes. Right, she was great. She was absolutely brilliant. You left, but it was brilliant. It was absolutely fabulous. And uh, on three separate occasions, not only the Jason Isaacs was lobbed across the thing, but people going LTL. FTE. LTE, FTE, exactly. Um, Adrian Villasenor. 
Good day, good doctors. I am Mexican and I recently finished my PhD in international development at the University of East Anglia in the most lovely place I have ever lived, Norwich. Recently, I had to leave what I now consider home to live in Santiago in Chile for a post-doc investigating the socio-economic impact of environmental policies around the world. How about that? He's a postdoctoral researcher at the Pontifical Catholic University of Chile. Wow. We have top listeners. It was here in Santiago where I faced a moral, physical and ethical dilemma. You ready for this? Yeah, I'm good. I went to a very small movie theatre from the 40s called El Beografo to watch a French film called No, uh, no Femme, as in N-O-S-F-E-W-M-E-S, so No Femme. No yeah. fam. Okay. Which, incidentally, a, w- a word I learned from Mark, I highly recommend. Seth Lakeman. Oh, him. Yes, oh, why did, him. Why didn't you say Seth Lakeman? I knew you were looking up something <laughs> on the internet and not paying attention to the show. Go on. Anyway, I thoroughly recommend No Fam. Uh, and I suddenly came to a horrible realisation. Less than ten minutes into the theatre, with the film already started, there were no ads or film previews, I realised that the old seats from the cinema had to have some perennially impregnated dust living there. As an asthmatic, I slowly started to feel how my bronchi were giving up on me. My first instinct, of course, was that of survival. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And as I was about to reach for my inhaler, I became really aware of the code of conduct. What if I make a lot of noise looking for it in my jacket? What if I drop it and have to bother the people around me? Would the noise of the three or four puffs I need annoy the other viewers? In the end, I thought I needed to live to tell this story and to discuss from one doctor to another whether living was more important than following the code of conduct. Because I think actually dying would probably have made more noise. Thanks a lot for your show. You'll never realise how important it was for a foreigner like me in the process of feeling home in your country for the first time in my life. Well... Uh, thank you for the uh, email. That's a brilliant email. I mean, an inhaler only makes a very sh- good. Do you, sorry. Can I say, first of all, Adrian, I hope you continue to feel very well. Yes. And the second yeah, point absolutely. is, if you've got an inhaler, as I I carry an inhaler because yeah. I'm an asthmatic as well. And it's, it's three, it's three it, squirts. Well, it's, right? it's, it's usually a couple of puffs. And I think, on balance, the need to survive is more important than the code of conduct. Yeah. And if you have to take out any medicine, in fact, in order to still live, yes. then that that's would, fine. I think that's yeah. basically a get-out-of-free card. I'm sorry I'm making a bit of a noise. I don't want to die. I was once... Well, I've twice, in fact, been in a cinema with people who've collapsed, and I've had to drag them out of the cinema. Did you be- shush them first? <laughs> Quiet. Believe me, it makes a lot more noise taking them out of the cinema in a state of collapse than it would have done had they just had they just left. And an inhaler is just like, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a yeah, really, yeah. it's a. But then you have to hold it in in your in your lungs. But that doesn't make any noise. Exhale, so what do you do? You you and then you, you squirt it in. You inhale it. You hold it for uh, about ten seconds, I think, and then right. you leave it thirty seconds. And, you do and it, it opens up the. The the airways. Yeah. It opens up the what they call the the the, air, what the, the, the back. Airway, no, the back. What it just they opens up everything that you need. Right. The bronchi. The, maybe. No, no. There's or a they... there's a word for it. There's a word for what they. Oh, Seth Lakeman. Seth Lakeman. That's right. Seth Lakeman. Cool. Very good. Seth Lakeman looks like a man who could really inhale heavily on one of those things. But do you know what I meant? Now when I said the folk singer who's really rich. I bet he has a peak flow, which is he blows into the tube and it goes off the scale. I excuse me. That's what? me. What. I, okay. you're, you're Seth Lakeman? No, I'm not Seth Lakeman. But, but okay, the only thing, there's a million things wrong with me, right? You know, I've got bow legs and I'm overweight and all the rest of it. But I can hit the back end of one of those, the, you know, yeah. you know the tube, yeah, every time. Really? Yep. Lungtastic. Yeah. A doctor once said to me, do that again. 
It's like a freak show. It's exactly. Roll like up, a... roll up. Come see the man who can blow up a peak flow meter <laughs> with one puff. Uh, I think we've got time for this. Catherine Boosfield in Highgate. As has been well rehearsed in previous podcasts, the BBC's flagship film programme is an essential sustaining force during the many educational endeavours of your listeners. With its regular assistance, I myself have just toiled through a rewarding-slash-draining three-year doctorate in clinical psychology, along with 49 colleagues at UCL, which is apparently almost as good as Manchester. (laughs) The recent institution of the iWitter app, which I understand the BBC directly endorses and both of you profit from in very personal and financial ways, has given an extra fillip to my thesis, writing efforts. I love reading that. It was highly motivating to know that fellow Battenberg lovers were similarly suffering in the library compound. That's the great thing because you can see they're in the same place yeah. as you. Not only that now, only the viva awaits. I'm hoping that the fact that I said hello to Jason in my acknowledgement section will sway them in the right direction. See, this is great. You have to think will it improve if I put them in the in the credits um, or at least not make them give me extra corrections in the meantime I would welcome the addition of a therapist's couch in your church as I'm sure you have many listeners in the mental health world as part of the congregation having this uh, read out would be a perfect way to top off the last three years of hard work in fact it would be totes amazeball thing ever and I can't even <laughs> wait thank you Catherine love the show Steve well, that's very good. Okay, yeah, we'll put in a therapist couch for everyone very working good. in uh, in this particular uh, yeah. area. We're broadening the church daily. That's right. It's another little nook. I'll just show you this. Have. Look, how much money have you made this week, by the way, from that app? I made. Got, like, I paid cup- for the suit with it. Oh right, yeah, that was. I got the the check in for that. Paid for the suit. Yeah, I got ten grand. Look, Seth, look, Lake, you're holding me a no, picture but, up no, on but, your laptop. No, I know, but look, look at his arms, right? Oh yeah, yeah, he's look, yeah. He has in, to, to use the phrase that uh, Douglas Adams used in in Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to the Galaxy. He's got arms like two Volvos parking, and he's got a neck which is something to behold as well because he has to hold his fiddle under there. He should be playing Superman. Right, we have to stop. Here comes the show. Uh, movies to be reviewed. Thank be- you for being clear about that. Thank you. Before one o'clock, include now you see me too, the Neon Demon, Maggie's Plan, and of course uh, the Legend of Tarzan. Yes. Now, I've already recorded the interview with Christoph Foltz. Yes. Okay. Uh, and in the interview, which you'll hear fairly shortly, I say, uh, and we've been joined by Christoph Foltz. Anyway, I get this email from Roger Armstrong, Simon and Mark. As I'm sure plenty of other people have informed you, no, Roger, you're the only one, Christoph Foltz's name is pronounced Valtz, not Volts. And while we're on the subject, Das Boot is pronounced Das Boat, Boat. just like in English. <laughs> Greetings from Vienna. Love the show, Steve. Anyway, so, well, I'm sorry about that. If I've got it wrong, I think everybody... I've never heard yeah. anyone say Christoph Waltz. But this is you like... You just sound, you know, okay. sound affected. This is like when my Dutch, my Dutch friend told me that it's uh, Max von Sudorf and uh, no. Paul Verhoeven. No. I went, yeah, but it's Max von Sydow and Paul Verhoeven, as far as anyone else is concerned. <laughs> that's the weird thing. If you pronounce it correctly, everyone thinks that's just weird. Yeah. Joel Benedict says, uh, Dear Tarzan and Jane, I had the joy this week of taking a two-day work trip to London. But as I was only working in the mornings, my fiancé and I decided to turn it into a small holiday. Very good. What do they call it? A mini break? Something like that. We arrived on Tuesday afternoon, having dumped our bags at our generic Lenny Henry-based hotel. (laughs) We we wandered down to Leicester Square. It's all about the pegs. They're so comfortable. (laughs) 
wandered down to Leicester Square to scout out the theatre ticket situation. As we walked into the square, we noticed an enormous construction outside the cinema and huge crowds gathering around. This turned out to be the premiere for the new Legend of Tarzan movie, of which more very shortly with yes. Christoph Waltz. <laughs> no, it just no, doesn't okay. sound right. Not a couple to miss out on a celebrity sightseeing opportunity. We found a barrier that was unoccupied and set up camp to try and catch a glimpse of some elusive celebs in their natural habitat. A lesser spotted Alexander Skarsgård... You're starting to talk like Attenborough. ...was our first sighting, followed by the top of Margot Robbie's head, which makes it all the worthwhile. Christoph Waltz followed shortly, but but unfortunately the rare Samuel L. Jackson was nowhere to be seen. We were just about to leave our spot by the pedestrian entrance when I saw a familiar face. Walking through the gate was none other than the great, the one and only... Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Isaacs. Hey! Hello to Jason! I enthusiastically called to the back of his head. Hello, mate! He replied as he turned to wave. And off he went on his merry way. What on earth was that? Asked my confused fiancé, who I've yet to manage to convert to your church. It's Jason Isaacs, I replied. Lucius Malfoy! I explained with a reference that she would understand, and with that, my evening was made. Sadly, we didn't see Sam Jackson, but a hello from Jason... Yeah, is much better. ...was a more than brilliant surprise. If you could give a cheeky wass-up to my fiancé, I feel it might help somewhat on my quest to convert her. She prefers listening to music rather than blokes wittering, apparently. We do music. We do. The podcast is music-packed. Box office top ten in just a second. By the way, uh, the Curbtons say a first time email has never listened to the show just about to fly to prague in our check-in queue noby jones priority queue next to ours toby jones toby jones join that queue if you can exactly so let's do box office top 10 and then uh, there's a christoph waltz interview waltz uh, which will be slightly shorter but the full version will okay. be uh, on the podcast let's nip through the okay the, the, tennis teenage mutant ninja we've done all that yeah don't know don't care uh, jungle books Thumbs and up still, both there, of us still there still there still there uh, with good effects, yeah. with animals and all that. Alice through the Looking Glass. Better than the first one, by my opinion. Uh, the nice. This is this is like Radio One speed. This is. Yeah, this. Uh, the nice guys at seven. Somebody did. Uh, Ian Loring got in touch with me to say, "I just like you Who to." Say, Ian Loring to say, "Who's I just, Ian Loring?" Is a person on Twitter. Um, honestly, this is your version of doing this quickly. Well, you mentioned someone that we don't know. Okay, somebody I know oh, through the magic right, of yeah. the intraweb, and now it'll turn out that it wasn't him. I think it was who said, "Just to let you know, I've seen all the Shane Black films and and." People who have seen the, all the Shane Black films also still think The Nice Guys is one of the best ones. So I said, point duly taken. Me Before You is at number six. Don't know, I haven't seen it. All right. uh, the Conjuring 2, the Enfield case is at five. Uh, Hollywood comes to Enfield and in the process undoes all the genuinely creepy stuff about a case which really wasn't that creepy in the first place. Independence Day Resurgence is at number four. Many, many people have told me how much they didn't enjoy Independence Day Resurgence. Uh, and uh, my feeling was it, it's not terrible. It's not good. Um, it's certainly not good. And it's certainly insufficient Jeff Goldblum, which, as several people have pointed out on uh, on, on, on Twitter, is uh, now uh, grounds for divorce. Um, but it's, it's all over the place and it makes no sense and it's nonsense. But the bits with Jeff Goldblum in are quite good. But the rest of it is flim-flam. Rowan and Cloud, what a great name that That's is. That's great. Uh, who describes himself as an underwhelmed crash bang wallop enthusiast. Okay. Uh, I've just finished viewing IDR, aka Totsimo, Tots Dimosh, and Dimosh. Well, Meh. Mm. I went, yeah, exactly. That was the, in fact, that was the word I used, wasn't it? I yeah. went for the bombastic insanity, and while parts do deliver the required mayhem, in particular the whole 
what-goes-up-must-come-down scene in which planes, trains and supertankers defy gravity as mm. flames dance about the screen, I was left wanting. Jeff G is on cracking form and the cheese remains mildly toasted rather than <laughs> overcooked, but I didn't really care. And the constant reminders of the better 96 film yeah. didn't help. From one Ronan to a Roland, must try harder. Uh, one more on this, Dean in Lincoln. I listened to Mark's review about Independence Day resurgence with some trepidation, fearing he would confirm what my gut was already saying. After hearing his very succinct meh, I decided I'd persevere and give it a go. I can confirm that Mark's review was too kind. Whilst I didn't, yeah, okay. I didn't hate it, which would be a compliment in itself, I did severely dislike the casting. Some of the effects looked like they'd been done on an Amiga 500, and the majority of the time I simply didn't care if they saved the day or not. Perhaps mm. it's the script, perhaps the bad acting, or perhaps I'm too misanthropic. No, no, I think, I think it's right. I think the, the, the very best, you know, if you had it on the post, it would be meh, and it's not that bad. Uh, so that's number four, Central Intelligence at number three. The real pleasant surprise. Went in not expecting it to be funny at all, particularly since I've had a problem with Kevin Hart in the past, and I laughed pretty much all the way through. I mean, yes, the plot is ropey and you know full of holes and all the rest of it, but the chemistry, this weird chemistry between Kevin Hart as the former high school hero who's now worried that he's washed up, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson as the guy who's turned himself into a bodybuilder but is still obsessed with unicorns and uh, 16 candles is weirdly funny. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Simon Humphrey says, a consistently unfunny and woefully tedious film, full okay. of lame jokes, one-dimensional characters, and a plot so unimaginative, you can just imagine it got made because of some executive said, hey, let's get that big muscle guy and that little fast-talking guy together. Won't that be hilarious? Write me a script now, somebody. And then they got Schwarzenegger and Dustin Hoffman. There you go. That's the way it goes. Central Intelligence is at number three. Absolutely Fabulous is at number two. Um, somebody, uh, I can't remember who, uh, got in touch with me to say, you know when you were saying the problem with all those celebrity cameos, is that they're not funny and they're like a comedy vacuum. I thought the rest of the film was going to be all right. I, I like um, uh, Joanna Lumley in it, but it's baggy and it feels like a TV episode stretched out to a movie and it, you know, it does, you, you need it to be better. Anyway, they said, you know, when you were complaining about the celebrity cameos, they said, yeah, of course, what it really, really lacked was a sparkling celebrity cameo from a film critic. Which was very pointed and uh, the point well made. Which you have done, of course. Yeah, exactly. That was the point. Yes, because, I, was well, just... I think what they were pointing out was that I, that I myself, can, uh, uh, having seen me on screen doing a celebrity cameo, I can hardly complain about True. other people not being funny. Ros Davison uh, from The Wirral, just back from AbFab. I enjoyed the show uh, without really being a massive fan, as in I enjoyed the TV show without being right. a massive fan. Had serious doubts based on the trailer. I went with my CGB, who was very excited. CGB? I thought you might know. CGB, uh, Celebrity Gordon Brown? No. Yeah, uh, he went with his Celebrity Gordon Brown. Yeah, who was very excited, whereas I had a feeling of dread. I said, I said, if it's somewhere between the two, we'll be fine. Well, actually, it wasn't. For me, it was like attending the Christmas party of an acquaintance where you are sober and everyone else is drunk and a bunch of their friends get up and do a skit full of in-jokes and knowing looks and think they're hilarious. And you stand there with a fixed smile wondering how soon you can quietly exit without being considered rude. The jokes, such as they are, had a reliance on transphobia and it did feel like the BBC who financed this film had basically used taxpayers' money for a gang of lovey pals to go on the lash and phone something in. I glanced at my friend a number of times in the hopes that we could leave if she wanted to. We stayed as it's only 90 minutes, but she agreed it was awful. Though there was laughter in the cinema, I mildly tittered once. Epic fail of the six laugh test. I came back, put the podcast on, was surprised by, surprised by Mark's mild and neutral review and wondered if it was resulting from a pre-existing 
persisting affection for the show. This is the worst film I've seen this year, and I saw Zoolander 2. Painful, oh, wow. OK, pain- I, th- I think it's not as bad as Zoolander 2. Painful, avoid, avoid, okay. avoid. I mean, I do have a, gr- a great affection for the TV show, and it is certainly true that you bring a residual affection for those characters, and the film plays on that. And um, But I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy any of it, because I did think that Joanna Lumley was really terrific. But I do think it's terribly baggy, and the, the laugh quotient is lower than it needs to be, and the celebrity stuff is just not funny. Liam Pennington, who's in Preston, uh, the boyfriend and I spent lazy Sunday afternoon in a large multinational cinema chain watching Ab Fab the movie. Alarm bells rang because the number of people in the screening was less than the number of the, the, number of the screen on the itself. Screen. Oh, for- no, the, actually the number of the screen, you know. <laughs> Uh, which was wearing the film version of the sitcom, uh, ticked all the boxes, tenuous reason to go abroad, celeb cameos, even yeah. more swearing. Yeah, yeah. And we both giggled and chortled and guffawed throughout. Yes, reviews have been sniffy, but we enjoyed the time spent with the very familiar faces and a very familiar story. My only issue is with the way the film was put together, as it was clear that some scenes had been re-edited to, to within an inch of their lives. Yeah. Some elements of visual and spoken detail appeared to happen with no reference before or since, suggesting that there's been much removed uh, without the bits being put back together again. I certainly didn't feel as gruff or grumpy as some of the critics. Fans of AvFab got what they wanted, more or less. It did remind me of that Leslie Nielsen thing from Naked Gun, is it 33 and the third? You know, nice party, Habsburg. I see a lot of familiar facelifts. Good line. James Smith, finally on this. Uh, I write in having just come from the AvFab movie on a short three-day break from my veterinary degree. Sadly, I have to whinge. I was unable to say that the movie was a success. I enjoyed the first 30 minutes, but it quickly ran out of steam with the odd low chuckle emerging from my throat as the film ran to its conclusion. The plot was rather flimsy. Uh, the biggest complaint I have is the problem with the running through the so-called comedies of recent years. As the film ran out of steam, it relied on the use of incredibly crude and rather disgusting sex jokes and yet more use of illegal drugs for cheap laughs. I'm fed up of these jokes. They fail to be entertaining and almost try to glorify the use of these substances and it really angers me that people think they are funny. But it is a successful movie, you'd have to say, at number two, wouldn't you? If, yeah, it's done all right. It hasn't knocked... Um the number one off the number one slot, which is I nearly stole is your the, thunder there. Is the number one actually at the number one slot? Yeah, is no, sorry, right? I was about to say what it was, and I realised that that's your job. Why I don't felt you? like as I, a treat, as a treat, you can say. Timothy Top Pop Pickers and straight in at number one for the second week. It's the Secret Life of Pets. You can't be straight in for the second week though. Can okay, it? that's why I didn't get the top of the pops gig, and no. you did. That's why you ended up looking like Mike Peters from The Alarm, and I looked like the yeah. lead singer from Shwadi Wadi. I think it's a non-mover at number one. A non-mover at number one. Secret Life of Pets. Uh, Scott Young, my six-year-old son and I went to see The Secret Life of Pets last Friday. He was desperate to see it and I was desperate to blank out the depressing political news. Uh, And for that alone, I have to say it worked a treat. Yet it passed the six laugh test, but the minion short at the start did that in five (laughs) minutes. Exactly. And probably more successfully, especially the paper bag hyperventilating (laughs) scene. My son, though, loved it and I found it good, but not as good as Despicable Me 1 or 2. If you could say hello to my son, Sirius who I am introducing to your church, it would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. About that. The sight of a minion inhaling a paper bag full of dog poo is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Do you think his, uh, his son Sirius is named after Sirius Black from Harry Potter or from the Constellation? Uh, I certainly hope it's after Harry Potter. Because that, that's a very smart name to go for, because the whole point... Sirius Black was one of the best characters. Yeah. That's Harry Potter three. Because yeah. of Azkaban, that could be the best. I want to be. I want. I'm going to start having more children now, and I'm going to name them all Sirius. Okay. Or various other creations out of Harry Potter, because <laughs> that wouldn't be weird at all. <laughs> so uh, we have uh, reviews to come, uh, but we also have uh, this week's celebrity interview. Which Even is? though you're about to hear me pronounce it clearly wrong. What's uh, who is it? Well, it's Christoph from Vienna. Valtz. 
Well, I'm going to say it wrong, okay? Because we're going to talk Tarzan with my special guest called Christoph Waltz, as you're about to hear. First of all, a clip from Tarzan the Legend. My king's army is due in six days. All I've left to do is deliver Tarzan to Chief Mbongo. I'm aware of his obsessive desire to kill your husband, but I've yet to discover the cause. What did Tarzan do? Killed his only son. Oh. Hmm. And get ready because that is nothing compared to what he will do to you. Your husband's wildness disturbs me more than I can easily express. And that's a clip from The Legend of Tarzan. It stars Christoph Waltz, amongst many others. Christoph, hello. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. We've been looking forward to having you on the show for a long time. Oh, thank you. I'm glad I could finally make it. Yes, well, <laughs> well we are too. So uh, we've seen many uh, incarnations of Tarzan and the story over the years. Tell us what kind of a Tarzan movie this is. I, I'm, I'm not a Tarzan historian, so I, I only saw one, possibly two, you know, the Johnny Weissmuller ones mm-hmm. from the 30s, um, I think from the 30s or 40s, and I, I, of course I saw them when I was a kid, and, and um, I, I know there are about 200 of them. So that's, that's an interesting thing altogether, Why? Uh, what makes this character Tarzan, who's, who's kind of a dubious creature, as of lately in any case, uh, what makes him survive 200 movies? That's more than James Bond. And I'm convinced these uh, modern mythological figures survive because they change, and they allow contemporary interpretations and new perspectives. So it's a new approach. It's taking Tarzan back from England into Africa, meaning the direction of the whole thing. The dynamic is already in the opposite direction, really. And it takes him into historical context in this version. Yes, in this version. And are we going back to this story because it is, even if it is dubious, as you say? No, I said the character. Yes, the character. Yeah. Even if it may come over as dubious. And, are we, and, and a bit like we, we go back, so there's two versions. There's one version of The Jungle Book, which is hugely successful. There's another one on its way. Do we go back to these stories because they're, however dubious they are in some areas, they're great stories? Well, you know, the, you're talking about story. You know, the Jungle Book, that's a story. Tarzan is a character, and uh, that character lives through different stories. And I said dubious because, yes, there there has been, and justifiably so, the accusation of racism and the white man saving, you know, being superior to the black man and um, the white man um, being the king of Africa. And, of course, you could see that in our case, in this movie, since he's taken back, he's more or less taken into the fold and into the fold, not only from a geographical point of view, but from the historical. Mm. And he's actually exposed to horrible machinations that they discover. And our Tarzan doesn't save history. He saves the day, what a movie hero should do. And the horrible machinations that you talk about is where you come in. So this is this is where Leon Rum. I mean, there are but you, as you are the envoy of the King of Belgium. Right. I think an entirely fictitious yes character. Tell us tell us about him and how he 
Fritz and Well, Tess. entirely fictitious, yes. This, this specific um, character is entirely f- uh, uh, fictitious, yet there have been people um, who did exactly what this character uh, does, and I'm convinced that there still are more than we would like to see, at least from our modest liberal point of view. Still governments and certainly big corporations wreak havoc that equal the havoc that colonialism wreaked. And in the many terrible stories of colonialism in 19th century Africa, the Belgian story is particularly brutal. Well, yes, but I refrain from pointing fingers at others, you know, because this is still going on. And this is just pars pro toto. This was particularly brutal. Um, I, I, now I'm familiar with that more than I'm familiar with the rest. But as I said, I'm convinced this is a, a, a current problem as much as it has been in the 19th century. For the sake of uh, an adventure movie, it's good to, take, to, to create a little distance because, yeah, um, the, the question has come up, you know, is it legitimate to, to mix um, historical horror with a popcorn adventure movie? And I would never question the legitimacy of it. On the contrary, I think it's a fabulous combination because it entertains doesn't mean it shouldn't have a deeper layer, um, so-called food for thought and, uh, you know, kindle your interest in and your awareness along with the entertainment. Absolutely, yeah. Belgium, as much as any other colonial power, exploited their colonies to the degree uh, where they didn't shy away from slavery, from genocide, from from ruthlessness of breathtaking extent. I guess, I guess I guess people who are listening might be thinking this is we're talking about a Tarzan movie, which for many people is a, like a, f- a fantasy story. And in the course of this conversation, we're talking about genocide yeah. and slavery, and yeah. that if if anything, at least it must be a tension, which well, can be a creative tension. Well, absolutely. No, no, no. That, you, you said it. Um, tension can be very creative. And I always try to maintain a certain awareness of uh, responsibility. If you're telling or if you're trying to tell a story to a bigger audience, hoping for the audience to be in the millions you have a responsibility. You can't just say, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm so clever, I'm so talented, I'm so great, I can tell them whatever, and they'll lap it up. Why would they lap it up? I think communicating with many people at the same time heightens the responsibility. And um, I always try to be aware of that. In this case, it, it was um, part of the plan. My guess is that you, you enjoyed playing Leon Room an awful lot. And, and I love the fact that he's very mannered. Uh, and he is very respectable and uh, uh, overtly religious, and you know, and uh, and yet this this brutal monster. Yeah, I, I I just enjoy playing complex characters because I like to be busy and not only physically busy. So that's what I'm really after. I'm I'm really trying to grant even characters that might um, seem or, or appear to be what what we call horrendous and horrible. I I still like to grant them humanity. Yes. But they're still horrendous and horrible. Well, yes, <laughs> one doesn't contradict the other. That, that's uh, that makes for really flat, sure. one-dimensional characters. Right. And when you call them monsters, that's almost an excuse for not trying to explain their humanity. 
which yeah. is a couple. Well, yeah, and it finishes the discussion. What you're trying to do is open a discussion. Yeah. I think I'm right that the, when we see the Congolese jungle, it's actually London. It's, is that what it Yeah, Leavesden. <laughs> <laughs> Watford. <laughs> it's Watford. Very good. I like that. And do you, and, and uh, London was your home for many years. Do you, yeah. still, do you still feel... Absolutely. Do you still feel at home here? I, I still feel at home. I still feel connected. I still... Uh, considered my favorite town in the world because because you know I have friends here I spent an important part of my life here there is a connection to the mentality I think it, architecturally it's beautiful culturally it's uh, probably one of the most exciting cities in the world um, the diversity that everybody else is talking about is happening you know without any further ado people just get on with it you know this is exactly how I think it should be yeah well, I know what it leads into. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, no. Well, you, you, and you have been asked a lot about that. So it's a movie show. So we'll we'll talk about movies. But and you're, I, th- you're about to direct. I think you you have a a story on the way. Is that? Yeah, yeah. That's that's right now. It's caught up in a legal quagmire okay. of a fairly ridiculous extent. So we best not talk about it. Well, we but can you talk want to about direct. it. But uh, I, I would, I would sling the wildest accusations. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, though you were on um, uh, an American chat show uh, recently. I was watching it uh, last night, and you ended up talking about people who eat food in the movies, and they go to the cinema and they eat vast amounts of food, and they bring in entire meals, and they bring in picnics. On this show a few years ago, we introduced a code of conduct. Yeah. which we asked everybody to observe uh, in the cinema. And I'm, I'm all for it. Right, I mean, I'm, let I'm, me hear the code. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell you. So this is it in brief form, okay? No shoe removal. No arriving late. No kicking of the seat in front of you. No mobile phone usage at all. No hobbies. No irresponsible parenting. If it's a 12A, don't take your five-year-old. No rustling of crisp packets. No slurping of drinks. No eating of anything harder than a soft roll with no filling. Would you endorse our code of conduct? Yeah, well, wholeheartedly. (laughs) (laughs) I would go a lot further than that, you know. No um, um, excessive uh, aftershave, because (laughs) why would I sit in this cloud of stink just because someone is trying to impress his girlfriend? No stinking food, um, but that goes with no eating of any... um, Yeah. Yeah, and um, certainly even during titles and credits, no conversations. People completely lose their, in a way, bearing and the environment. They're not aware of the fact that others might have come for the movie. Yeah. And if movies are going to battle for attention, going to the cinema has to be an enjoyable experience. And if the person, we mentioned the Jungle Book, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but the person next to me had an entire Mexican meal with with glass jars and dips and the whole the whole thing. And I desperately wanted to, and I didn't because I'm a feeble kind of English Southerner. I, I wanted to say, what do you think you're doing? You are stinking the place out. I don't want to be a part anyway, but I didn't. What I needed was Colonel Hans Lander to come along and enforce the code. Well, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm against violence, <laughs> Nazi enforcement of any oh. kind. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to kick the person with a uh, Mexican meal, at least in the shin. 
<laughs> so controlled violence. Okay. What do we see you in next, Christoph? I'm not sure. There, there's a movie sort of um, in a holding pattern. I have no idea what's happening with that. It's called Tulip Fever. It was supposed to be out, but I think they they didn't really get the spot, the the right slot for the release. So they they're hoping for a better one. And then after that, I'm not sure. Maybe some more Blofeld at some stage. Well, you know... Then we like those trousers and, and the shoes. It was a beautiful thing. Trousers and shoes? Yes. All together? Just that, yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> nice angle. Anyway, um, Christoph, uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Thank us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Do you think he understood my reference to his trousers and shoes? No. Because th- they were particularly striking the first time you see him in Bond, you know. Yeah. Slip-on shoes with trousers don't quite fit. Exactly, you know, he's a bad one. Yeah, I think it was interesting, you compare the, the clip where he's playing the, the emissary of the King of Belgium yeah. and then goes to his actual Austrian accent. It's yeah. exactly the same. Exactly the same. But there must be a difference between a Belgian and an Austrian accent. But he wasn't. He was just playing non-specific European sinister, wasn't he? It's our special uh, moving Wimbledon-based feast, uh, special edit version uh, for you, uh, and lots more stuff on the podcast. So much more fun on the entertaining podcast, Mark, which will be available later. Plus a full-length version of the Christoph Waltz uh, interview, which we shortened, uh, obviously for uh, for these reasons. So Tarzan, yeah, Stephen Headley, the leg end of Tarzan. as a regular Wittertainee, I'm very excited. Might actually have seen a film before you. My 10-year-old daughter, Tilda, had a very small walk-on part in Tarzan. This necessitated her going to Kettleston Hall and dressing up and being fed copious supplies of meringues by a very friendly Margot Robbie. She also had to go down to Warner Brothers Studios a few times. When she got back, we asked if she'd met anyone famous, and she said, yes, I think so. Someone called Tom Cruise shook my hand. <laughs> have you heard of him? So last, Although he's not in the movie. So last Saturday, we went to or the crew... is and- he? Maybe he's one of the CGI. Good point. You know. So last Saturday we went to a crew and cast screening. Not a premiere, no red carpet, no flashing cameras, but fun in itself. The film was introduced by the producer and the director, David Yates. Incredible to believe that there were no visits to Africa to make this film. It was all CGI. What was also different about this screening was that there were yelps and whoops every time one of our audience came on the screen. Of course, as parents, we were very controlled, having been warned by our daughter that it would be very uncool to say anything at all when she appeared. This is classic parent stuff. Also, at the end, nobody got up. They all wanted to see their person's name in the credits. The film itself was fun and action-packed with great cinematography and stirring music, a ripping good yarn, and full marks to Warner Brothers, who treated my daughter brilliantly. Uh, Stephen Headley, that's good to hear. This is what Mark thinks. Well, I mean, I have to say I'm very, very lukewarm about uh, The the Legend of Tarzan. When you heard that interview with Christoph Waltz, and he was saying that the thing about Tarzan is, you know, why is he managed to go through all these different incarnations, the hundreds of screens. I mean, he said because he's able to change. So the change this time is essentially um, it's the story is moved. Um, Tarzan Grace has come home, is now being called back. You, you've explained this in the in the interview to some extent. He's been called back to the Congo where there is this terrible thing going on and um, Christoph Waltz is playing the emissary to the king and it's it's all part of a you know, sort of horrible backdrop of slavery and exploitation. So essentially it's a kind of, you know, they're, they're tr- trying to give it a political edge and including the Sam Jackson character who is a real character but has been sort of shoehorned into this particular story. So it's a strange mixture of the two things. I have to say I didn't think that 
that worked entirely. I mean, I, I can understand what they're trying to do because you can't just do an old-fashioned Tarzan movie. But I wasn't convinced that what this gave us was a good enough reason for, for you know, for rebooting, for relaunching. There's a couple of problems. The first one is that it did seem to me that at times it was trying to be a superhero movie. I mean, I know you have less problem than this than I do, but the swinging through the trees in, in Spider-Man style, I mean, he might, he was leaping tall buildings at a single bound. He might actually have been Superman. Second thing is that as uh, Skarsgård, bless him, as the central character, as Tarzan, acts with his abs and they are the most interesting part of his performance because he is a very, very bland hero. I mean, certainly all the time that you're with Margot Robbie, her character is more interesting, that kind of slightly anachronistic, but, you know, not unwelcome idea that actually she's, you know, she's the sort of punchy character who the scenes in which she faces off against Christoph Waltz, every moment that Christoph Waltz is on screen, I'm kind of interested in the drama and every moment that he isn't on screen, it's sort of seems to fall down slightly. So I think the strange thing is it feels like something which is trying to be fresh, trying to be new, trying to recontextualise something, trying to take an old franchise and turn it into something different. But rather than feeling like an Edgar Rice Burroughs reinvention, it ended up feeling like somebody wanting to make a superhero movie and not quite doing it. And I thought at the beginning... You know, I know you were sort of slightly concerned about this. You were worried that maybe all that stuff at the beginning just felt out of place well, in the context of the film. Yeah, it was just a, I had a feeling of being uncomfortable. There's lots to enjoy in the film, but there's a. I mean, you heard Christoph Waltz talking about the the story about what happened in the Belgian Congo, mm, and is, the story of the Belgians in Africa is just truly t- horrible and terrifying. But it's still a wisecracking movie, you know, a fantasy movie or a superhero movie, however you want. And I just. I felt as though it was an uncomfortable mixture of yeah. the two. Well, I mean, you know, my, my conclusion was that that word uncomfortable is right, but also I think honestly unsuccessful. There were there were large sections of it in which I, I was quite bored. And the sections in which I was interested tended to be people... Do, and like, for example, the, there is a sequence in which Christoph Waltz has uh, a meal with Margot Robbie in which he's taunting her and, you know, telling about what he's going to do to Tarzan and all the rest of it. And that did seem like a pretty much straight replay of a role that he has played before, at which he is brilliant. We know that he can eat food in a way that is thoroughly menacing in the precision of the way he holds his knife and fork. That in itself is not enough. So I have to confess that I came out of it feeling disappointed, feeling that it didn't it didn't deliver the thing that it promised to deliver. You know, when you've got Craig Brewer um, uh, on the screenplay credits, who's done some interesting stuff in the past, not stuff I particularly like, but has done some interesting stuff. It felt like the idea was more interesting than the execution. In the end, it didn't work. I just want to mention the other bit, that if you get to the end of the movie, if you're still there, that the effects, it seems to they spent a lot of the money early on, and in the same way that Moby Dick got let down... Moby Dick, the, the, the movie, Moby Dick, it's not movie, called Moby the... Dick, it's called In the Heart of the Sea. OK, yeah, the Ron yeah, Howard... I think the book was fine. Yeah, yeah. In generally, I think that book will do quite well. No, I'm talking about the Ron Howard yeah. movie, which uh, which we discussed at Christmas. Yeah. Uh, it, when they get they go to a town uh, on the coast at the, end of the, at the end of the movie, and I thought the effects w- were terrible. It was all Moby Dick, and the ship's out to sea. I thought, really? <laughs> you know, it was like a cartoon, almost, yeah. with Captain Pugwash. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, you know, okay. it's it's entertaining enough. I mean, actually, oddly enough, In the Heart of the Sea is not a bad comparison. Another film which attempted to do a sort of revisionist take on an old story and didn't quite work. There so are I, things about it that you kind of quite admire the idea, but it just doesn't quite work. So I've been quite helpful. Yes, in, in that, in You've that been respect. very helpful, except Excellent. for the fact that you said that Moby Dick suffered from CGI. 
Well, I think everybody knew <laughs> what I meant until you had to get all difficult on me. Now uh, You See Me what, Too? Okay. Yeah, what else is out So then? Now You See Me Too. This is the sequel to Now You See Me. and uh, It's not a great title. It's too cumbersome. Now, now you see, it's too long. Yeah, but and also it's the joke that everybody has made, which is Now You See Me Not. So um, uh, basically, at the beginning, in the first film, there was these magicians. They were sort of like, uh, they, they, they stole from the rich and gave to the poor. And they were sort of, you know, social justice warriors. And then the film ended. And now we pick up the franchise again. And... And, well, I would try and explain the plot, but why, when Morgan Freeman can do it so much better? The eye, it may not lie, but don't think for a moment that it can't be lied to. Seeing is believing, but is it truth? People see the horsemen as noble Robin Hoods, are they? Or are they common thieves? Depends on your point of view. Here's what you know. They robbed a bank in Paris from a stage in Las Vegas. They fleeced an insurance magnet of hundreds of millions of dollars and disappeared from a roof in New York, always showering their devoted fans with money. Here's what you don't know. They left one man behind, framed, holding the bag. Me. Previously, Eon, now you see me. I mean, okay, I could listen to Morgan Freeman reading the phone book. And let's be honest, that's pretty close to what he was doing. Now, uh, Jesse Eisenberg came on the the show show last uh, week week, and you liked him very much uh, as a guest. He did talk in a way like a parody of Jesse Eisenberg. Um, So now you see me too. If you were underwhelmed by now you see me, and I have to confess that I was because in a world in which we have films like The Prestige, you know, now you see me doesn't deliver those goods. This just has all the same problems, but slightly more so. So Jesse Eisenberg was talking about the fact that they've expanded the, you know, the, the central cast. Most of the cast members, the key cast members come back, some others not, and then you know, more characters. And you have uh, Daniel Radcliffe. I actually thought Daniel Radcliffe was okay, Daniel Radcliffe, and you know, I, I thought he did better than, than perhaps you did. But the main problem with it is this. There is a complicated plot, super complicated plot, about double-crossing and you know, triple-crossing and thingy-crossing, and all of them, they're against each other, but they're together, and all of them. And the way everything has to be solved is by performing ludicrous feats of magic. So two problems. Firstly, I don't believe for one minute in that the plot made any sense in terms of, ah, the way we have to solve this is by doing a big magic show. Secondly, before the screening that uh, I saw it at, they had a guy doing close magic, um, you know, to sort of warm the crowd up. Remember when I saw Elvis and Nixon, I said there was an Elvis impersonator there. Uh, this time they had a close magician and the close magician did this close magic and it was the usual stuff. It's like, I cannot figure out how he did it. You know, he took a sort of note off somebody and he put it somewhere and then it came out somewhere else. Then he had, you know, the stuff that you really, and it's, it's happening before your eyes. And somebody said very prophetically, the problem is you've just spoiled the film. And they were right, because then what happens is you then see the film in which people are doing magic tricks. And not only is it great big stage magic in that the interview that you did, Jesse Eisenberg said the big stuff is easy. The making the rain go backwards is yeah, easy. It's effects, the yeah. difficult stuff is the small stuff, is the sleight of hand, the, you know, the misdirection, the, the onset trick. And of course, when you're watching a film, you don't get that because it's all to do with editing and special effects. There is one sequence in Now You See Me Too, which you've seen the film as well, obviously, because you did the interview. There's one sequence which is to do with uh, having to pass cards between each, between the, between the gang, between the horsemen. And there's a huge kind of contrivance, which is that there is a computer chip which somehow they can get to look like a playing card 
which you go, really? Okay, fine. So that's so you're setting this up so that you can do some card tricks. And then for about, it's about five minutes long, isn't it? The group pass the card it's between themselves. It's a big themselves. choreographed sequence. We mentioned it in the Yeah, interview. exactly. That sequence was kind of the best thing in the film. But even that sequence had the problem of, this would be so much more impressive. I was seeing somebody doing it actually in front of me rather than the sort of, you know, the, the cameras following the cars and all that sort of stuff. So you're left with a problem, which is that in the film is sort of like a celebration of a great big complicated magic trick that it itself is telling you is, you know, they're not really doing magic. What it is is all tricks. And yet half the stuff they're doing is actually impossible and defies the laws of physics. But more importantly, it's not being done in front of you. It's being done. And now you just think... You've just had an idea. You've had an idea, which is, let's do a caper, but with magicians, as opposed to what Christopher Nolan would do, which was, let's make a film in which the narrative thrust of it is the moral issue of magic and the moral issue of the trick. And somehow he turn what Christopher Nolan does is take a trick, you know, the guy goes into the, the, the vat of water and somehow escapes... And somehow Christopher Nolan turns this into something which is, you know, like a meditation upon existence. This doesn't. This just goes, here's a bunch of tricks. Look, lights, look, rain going backwards, look, cards. And then it stops. I, I, and yes, I thought Daniel Radcliffe was, was, was fine and funny and quite funny when we meet him for the first time because he's making jokes about being into magic and, yeah. you know, and that kind of stuff. Or chortle, chortle. It was the stuff he did with Michael Caine that was... I thought the script was. I thought, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't say, "Can we have another go at this?" Because this just feels. A but, bit but, but in his defence, that's not his problem. That's not his fault. It's what he's working with, isn't it? It comes out of his mouth. So. Oh, sure. okay, fine. You thought the problem was the delivery, not what he has no, to no, say. No, 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 no. no. It was. It the was, problem was the script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anthony in Newcastle. Yeah. Uh, I love your show. I wish I'd loved Now You See Me Too as much. But having watched it tonight, I came out feeling frustrated with the film. I really wanted to like it as I had enjoyed the first one and was happy to suspend disbelief in the interest of being entertained. But the film was laced with so much implausibility and so many convenient yeah, Implausibility is a polite word. That there really wasn't much substance for the story to go on. It was a shame as most of the performances were decent. Many of the characters were fleshed out more than in the first film. All to the backdrop of a good score as usual by Brian Tyler. But beneath the surface... There really wasn't much of a story, or maybe that was part of the trick, and we'll see it revealed in the inevitable exactly. Now You See Me 3. By the way, a CGB, which we had referred yeah. to in a previous uh, email, is one of our own ongoing jokes, and uh, the Wikipedia page so reveals sorry. a CGB to be a cinema-going buddy. This is terrible. We've forgotten our own jokes. Yes. Well, there are quite a few. Yeah. So, and, and people do have CGBs. It's not necessarily your other half. It's just someone who likes to go to the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andy Stilp in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, what the first Now You See Me lacked in quality, it made up for in watchability. The movie sped by maybe because of the onstage showstoppers that captured your attention. In comparison, NYSM2... As is, no one at all is calling is it. ...is the cinematic equivalent of pushing a hospital bed through a minefield. Forget magic, this was so runny-explainy. Runny-explainy, Robert Langdon to insert But runny-explainy runny and not makey-sensey. There were various points in NYSM2 where our heroes have to abandon tricks and flee. This seems like a well-suited metaphor for the, for the franchise vote. at large. Shh. Don't bang the table. Sorry. People. This is a table which is used for heavyweight okay. yeah. politics. Fine. This has been a very bit... If you're watching online, this is... This has been a lot of famous people have been in this studio this week. Very good. It's an overheated studio. You're sitting in Tony Blair's seat, by the way, from this In week. so many ways. 
When describing Now You See Me 2, the words dumb and stupid come to mind, says Roland Evers. Uh, and although Morgan Freeman desperately tries to convince the audience that there is always more than meets the eye, there this isn't. movie feels like the surface of a very thin playing card. Other problems include Willie Harrison's extremely annoying brother. Boy, that's true. Some incredib- <laughs> incredibly cringeworthy dialogue. And the final twist is even more, oh, come on, really? Yeah, exactly. Than the twist yeah, in the first I know, one. I know. I mean, literally, in the, in the screening that I saw, in that re- reveal, people went, People did literally out loud go, really? Yeah, and to conclude, when you pay to see NYSM2, the trick is definitely being pulled on you. Okay. We're going to do TV Movie of the Week in the, podcast, in the podcast, by the way, so let's move on. What else do you have? Neon Demon, the new film by Nicholas uh, Winding Refn, which has caused a lot of controversy. Apparently, when it played at Cannes, there was uh, some applause and some booing, which is the way it typically standard. goes. Exactly standard, as you know, as we refer to it in Cannes, it's moving. So the story is uh, Elle Fanning is Jesse, who is... A uh, 16-year-old who comes to LA wants to enter the world of modelling. She is told that basically she needs to pretend. She needs to tell everybody that she's 19. She is immediately thrown into this world of big bad wolves and scariness. So it's essentially part fairy tale, part morality tale. A little bit like Showgirls meets Company of Wolves. And immediately she's thrown into the company of other models, all of whom seem to have this kind of dead-eyed robotic stare. Think the Terminator meets the Stepford Wives. The thing that she has that is apparently different is that she is she is youthful and innocent in a world of corruption. A story we have heard before. Here's a clip. I think that I wish I had your hair. Is this your natural color? You're just so beautiful. Don't you think that she's just perfect? Is that your real nose? Yeah. God, life is so unfair. Gigi just got out of the body shop. She's still a little sensitive. You had work done? (laughs) You say that like it's a bad thing. Sweet, plastics is just good grooming. Imagine going a year without brushing your teeth. I go to this guy in Beverly Hills. Andrew. Dr. Andrew. She's in love with him. (laughs) Of course I love him. Look at me. He calls me the bionic woman. Is that a compliment? Now, the best way of describing this film is it's a film which you either decide to get on board with or you don't. I have to say that I did. Essentially, as I said, that story, which is the fairy tale, it's, you know, Sleeping Beauty, it's Red Riding Hood, but all done in this very, very lurid fashion uh, by Nick Winding Refn. Um, During the course of it, I mean, visually, I think it's absolutely astonishing. There's one point in which they go to a party which looks like uh, Eyes Wide Shut remade by Gaspar Noé. There are, as we move through the story, it becomes an even darker fairy tale that trips over into Grand Guignol. The whole final section of it is very much uh, Dario Argento, I think, with a touch of Lucio Fulci and Mario Bava. I spotted uh, elements of uh, Andrzej Zuwowski's Possession at one point or something like Lynn Stopkovich's Kissed. So at, speaking as somebody who's a horror fan who has a sort of uh, a, a history of enjoying extreme cinema or a cinema that's deliberately there to be provocative, I went with the film. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, that when some people sort of take against it and say it's shocking and outrageous, I, I never thought it was. I thought that what it was was a film made by somebody who has an absolute uh, affection for exploitation. And uh, if you look at Nick Winding Refn's book from last year, The Act of Seeing, which is basically a collection of exploitation movie posters, it's something, it's a soft spot for him. So it's 
essentially a, a very sort of familiar story about the corruption of innocence, the, the consumption and commodification of youth, but told as a massively overwrought fairy tale that then descends into deliberate, deliberate shock exploitation, uh, exploitation cinema, looking definitely back to the Jolly, I think from the you know, from 1960s, 1970s. Chris Martinez giving us a sort of synthy, squishy score that to some extent recalls the music that you get from a Dario Argento movie, but to my ear, sounded more like that kind of pulsating threat that you would get from the Tangerine Dreams score for uh, for Sorcerer, the remake of Wages of Fear. So all these, th- I thought while I was watching it, even, I, even as part of me is thinking in very much the same way as I do with Lars von Trier, oh, Nick, you know, oh, Lars. But... I have to confess that I went with it and I thought, you know, st- visually stylish. People keep saying vacuous and empty, but that's about the world that it's portraying. Daniele Viendaka has been in touch. Uh, as a massive fan of Drive and Bronson and a horror geek, I couldn't wait for Nicholas Winding Refn's foray into horror. How disappointing then to be greeted by a film that can best be described as pretentious twaddle. <laughs> in trying to portray the shallowness and brutality of the fashion industry, Neon Demon sadly very quickly becomes a parody of itself. While the film is extremely stylish and accompanied by a beautifully haunting soundtrack, it is a complete mess with some extremely hammy acting and the horror elements were gratuitous and seemed there simply to shock the best example being a thing there which I'm not going to mention but a few people left the cinema at that point alas 100% style over substance Um, this from Katie Cowan uh, last night I went to a screening of the new uh, Neon Demon movie, having only seen a couple of the director's films before, Drive, which I loved, and Only God Forgives, which I hated. Yeah. I went into the film with an open mind. I'm not sure if it was Winding Reference intention, but he's managed to create a film as vacuous and empty as the L.A. fashion world he is depicting. The Neon Demon is the definition of style over substance. Stunning visuals let down by a poor and cliched script. Fashion models can be bitchy and don't eat. Wow, who knew? The film also felt far too long, lots of pouting, not a lot else. And then when the film did take an interesting horror-inflected twist towards the end, it stopped. I can't wait to hear Mark's opinion on this film. I can't decide whether he's going to love it or hate it. No, I but like it. Maybe people, maybe it is going to be one it's, of those. It's, it's absolutely divisive, and uh, I understand that entirely. But for me, it fits into that canon that goes from uh, 70s Argento, very much a uh, 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 possession, the Zuofsky film, and uh, you know if you if if you hate it, only God forgives. You're going to have a very hard time with this. But you know what? A part of me thinks I'm quite glad that somebody's made a film that is so divisive. You talked about one star reviews in the Times this morning, yeah, was, yeah, and five star reviews. Either way, I like the idea that somebody is making films that are that divisive. And I, I said the comparison to me, although I think it's not a comparison that would be entirely welcomed, would be with the Lars with Lars von Trier, in which. Even even as you're going, oh, Lars, you're going, well, yeah, but I'm kind of glad somebody's doing it. And it is, and instead of that thing about the style, the style is the substance. That is what the film is about. The style is absolutely the substance. Movie of the week. For me, The Neon Demon. And uh, for but, everyone else? The Neon Demon. And but for everyone else? The Neon Demon. But stay and listen to the podcast where we're also going to be reviewing Maggie's Plan. Mark, I haven't said yeah. for a while. Oh, what? That, put your headphones on. We're actually doing this. Oh, sorry. This sorry. Is part of the podcast. Oh, sorry. I beg your pardon. How sorry. How nice their scenes looking. Oh, sorry, so thank you. I find it's a joke. Okay, great. I don't know whether anyone got in touch during the show. I certainly wasn't past any correspondence about people who might have seen it on the webcam. It is fab, though, isn't it? But I'll tell you what, uh, what I. You know, Under this... the moon of love. Ba-dum, ba-dum. Okay, let's do. Okay, if, since you're going to go that way, gonna, well, let's do Shiwadi Wadi trivia, okay? Oh, I, I'll fail. I don't know yeah. anything about Shiwadi Wadi. What's Shiwadi Wadi's first single? 
No idea. I think it's Rock and Roll Music. What was their second single? No idea. Pretty sure it was Rock and Roll Lady. What was their first album called? No idea. Shiwadi Wadi. What was their second album called? Don't care. Step two, from which the hit single... Don't care. Three Steps to Heaven was taken. Third album? Don't care. The one in which they really came into their own as a creative force, Trocadero. And you, you're the one that's got a problem with the shawadi no, wadi suit. Because it's know... not a shawadi wadi suit, but I am yeah, yeah. you know, of the age in which I was... But thank you very much for even saying that. TV movie of the week. Yes. This is the important business. Are we going there? Are we fine? Griselda Dominguez. It might be Warrior. I just listened can to... Can I... The... Sorry. And now we can stop any competition. That is the best name of any correspondent ever. Griselda Dominguez. That is fantastic. I am going to call myself Griselda Dominguez from now on. Is that, that, you could dress up as Griselda Dominguez on a Saturday night. That is a brilliant name. There you are walking along the seafront. Do you think that's do you think that's a, a, a given name or do you think that's a that's a that, that, I don't know. That's I'm so impressed by that name. We've got Oliver Triggs Bloom coming next. Maybe just people think I'm going to give myself a glamorous name when I contribute. If Griselda Dominguez and Oliver Triggs Bloom went out together, yes, that would be fantastic. I mean, I don't mean went out together. I just mean went out. I bet you know. they're both really, really good looking. I, but do you? But do you think they're wearing shawadi wadi suits? Well chiselled. No, I really, really don't think that. Okay. Uh, right, Griselda Dominguez. Do you remember? You probably don't know this, but there's a song called Carlos Dominguez, which Paul Simon sang, but he called himself something else. Okay, <laughs> look. It might be Warrior, says Griselda. I just listened to the episode when the DVD came out, and Dr. K made it his DVD of the week. But Down Terrace, he really likes Ben Wheatley, so Warrior or Down Terrace is what I'm going for. The aforementioned and very famous Oliver Triggs Bloom. What a great week this is. Mark's going to pick The Way, Way Back, an excellent film. I did love that film. Funny and tender and somehow captured an almost indie feel despite having an A-list cast. Uh, Patricia Lane says The Way, Way Back should be TV movie of the week or just a good movie that happens to be on the telly, as it's called. It was a really enjoyable evening at the local cinema for me. came out uh, well. We're going to be re-watching it. James Waite says, well, Down Terrace is absolutely excellent if you've not seen it. It's my TV movie of the week and it should be Mark's. And Diana James, I really enjoyed The Place Beyond the Pines, so I'd give that another watch. But Mark will probably choose Warrior, a powerful film with excellent performances. But what is Mark's TV movie of the week? I'm going to go for The Titfield Thunderbolt, which is on Wednesday on BBC4 at 9pm. Um, and I'll tell you why. So this is it, this is absolutely fantastic uh, Charles Crichton film, wonderful uh, 1953 British comedy about this village attempting to keep a you know a, a, a railway line open. And the reason I'm choosing it is not only because it's an enduring and endearing classic that it, you know stood the test of time, there was one of the greatest parts of my cinema education was one half term when I lived in East Finchley, uh, the Phoenix did this thing in which they did a series of double bills. Uh, every day you could see a double bill and it was it was Man in White Suit, Titfield Thunderbolt, um, Lady Killers. I mean, just... and So in one week, I saw... And this was one of the ones that I saw and I knew nothing about it, absolutely nothing about it, other than the fact that I, did, I had nothing else to do that half term other than go to the cinema. And I remember that week as being hallowed and glorious. And so seeing Titfield Thunderbolt in the cinema, it must have been the early 70s. I mean, obviously the film is from 1953, but I saw it in the Phoenix in uh, the 1970s and... I, and it was on a double bill with the man in the white suit, and I just loved it to pieces. When's it on? It's on at nine o'clock on Wednesday on BBC Four, which, frankly, from you know where I'm standing, is a, a remarkably mainstream time because it's you know it's not in the middle of the night and it's not on some incredibly obscure channel. Matchbox were quite good. I like Matchbox. I was in an airport. Rockabilly oh. Rebel. That was them. Yeah. 
and Midnight Dynamos and all the rest of it. I saw Matchbox at the Southgate Royalty. See, the funny thing was that when when Matchbox... Matchbox were always old Teds as opposed to young rockabillies, even though, you know... So it was that weird thing that there's Matchbox and the Polecats were sort of like the old generation and the new generation, but not so long ago... I was in an airport and I bumped into Matchbox and they were going... Uh, well, all of them? Yeah, I think. I mean, there was the whole group was, was there. And How many are in Matchbox? There was four. Four, yeah. And they were going to Germany to go and play some massive uh, festival and still rocking. I mean, still absolutely rocking and good for them. We should put some Matchbox on the playlist. We are the Midnight Dynamos. Midnight Dynamos. And how about Shanana? Oh, yeah, anything by Shannon. Yeah, we'll anything, anything by Shannon. Did and you ever see Shannon play live? How about, no, how about, and we should put some Shawadi Wadi on because they did have their moment. Okay, fine. We, which should we put on? Because you're the expert. Well, if you're, if, if, if we're going into this sort of slightly proggier period, no, we're not. No. Oh, all right. Well, in that case, do Hey Rock and Roll because it's the, that's you know, good. Because it's, it's got the glam drum rock sound, the two drummers, you know. Now, because, because we had a shortened show, we're obviously putting more stuff in the podcast, which, yes. is, which is a very good thing. But I just I needed to mention these two emails. Okay. Naomi, Naomi White, can you please pass on a big thank to Mark for recommending Notes on Blindness, as I doubt it would even have crossed my radar otherwise. And he prompted me to see one of the most affecting films I've watched in a long time. Good. I left the Glasgow Film Theatre with my fellow Wittertainee. Both of us moved to tears whilst walking along the not unpopulated Sockyhall Street afterwards, scrabbling to find a vocabulary for what we'd made of the film. Yeah. I'm so grateful to have seen it in the cinema. A TV screen just would not have done it justice. There is a painful poignancy in a film about blindness being so visually stunning. Stunningly impressive sound and score as well. Its title belies the breadth of its scope, though notes on depression, grief and adjustment and connection, redemption on suffering and grace is admittedly a little less pithy. We agreed a disclaimer might be in order, nabbed from the marriage ceremony, that this film is, quote, is not... Uh, is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, advisedly and soberly. So thank you, Mark. And also, on the same subject, Jack I'm Layton. so glad that we get in this correspondence. Last night I went to see Notes on Blindness. What an experience. On the surface, I thought it would be little more than a really good podcast with images. However, this is a thoroughly cinematic film. The way the camera describes the objects of the film, uh, describes the objects of the film, creates an immersive world that feels thick, weighty and tactile the audio design is second to none at times i was daring myself to close my eyes Mm -hmm. to just be in the soundscape that much better whilst the central characters are thoughtful and caring i would have loved to sit and have a conversation with john i've never seen a film that explores the senses so thoroughly and now i worry that the next film i see will feel thin shiny and empty of objects with no sense of how people inhabit the world as hearing touching feeling bodies this is a film not just to be seen but experienced Lovely emails. Um, can I add to those um, an interesting thing about the, the the soundscape of Notes on Blindness, which I'm I'm so glad people. I mean, I just it knocked me out. I was completely bowled over by it. I thought it did a brilliant job, and I, I it I did it did remind me to some extent of that great film that Gary Tarn made, um, Black Sun. I think Gary Tarn came on the program to talk about that. It was a long time ago, two thousand and five, but I think he did. Um, that because they want Notes on Blindness to be accessible to the widest possible audience, there are three versions of the film in terms of the soundtrack. I, I believe this to be the case. So there is um, the, the ordinary version, there is an audio-described version, and there is also an enhanced audio version. Apparently, and I, I, I have yet to experience this, the the audio-enhanced version, which is designed entirely for the non-sighted audience... Um, 
basically turns the film into a completely sonic experience, brings in more voices, uh, uses other dialogue that isn't in the original film itself. And I know from somebody who's experienced it that it is a really terrific job. There is also the virtual reality um, thing which they've done. They've created this thing called, is it called Into Darkness, I think, in which it's a short presentation featuring certain segments from John John Hull's writing, particularly I think On Rain is one of them. Um, and I, I just really admire the fact that they've they've taken such care to make the film as accessible as possible. And I felt that I learned something from watching it because this is not something I know about, as, you know, and I, as I've demonstrated in my stumbling talking about it. And um, I really felt that the film was an insight into uh, that world and how incredible to have a subject who was so eloquent and so soul-searching and so easy to understand when describing something that's so indescribable and then to have filmmakers who were willing to take on the challenge of representing that world, both visually and orally. I, I thought they did brilliantly. Uh, and well worth hunting out. And maybe yeah. it'll get a, 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 a better distribution just because uh, we're talking about it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, can I just so Andrew Fagan has sent us an email? I just would say thank you, Andrew, for getting in touch. Uh, and he'd like to know if everything is going to be all right. As we explained last week, and I'll quote The Exorcist 3 once again it all works out really when at the end of time. I know, I know. I know. So um, soon, but yeah, I don't find yes, it, it is all going to be all right. That's right. Let's try that again. So, Andrew Fagan, thank you very much for your email. Mark, is everything going to be all right? Yes. Nuance. <laughs> a perfect radio moment there. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll still do DVD of the week, and uh, we've got some uh, more bits and pieces here which I want to clear up. However, do you want to do another movie? Because yeah, well, there's stuff to do. I want to do Maggie's Plan. So did you ever see Love and Friendship, the Whit Stillman film? You know, here's a weird thing. Whit Stillman got in touch with me after I had reviewed Love and Friendship um, because... I had forgotten this. He had, he had been on the programme, talking about Metropolitan, and then when um, uh, Damsels in Distress came out, I had liked it, and you had really disliked it. Do you remember Damsels in Distress? It was the film in which they basically attempt to solve the, the depression problems of their age group with, uh, with dancing. And there's a the thing about he is a playboy and an operator. Did that phrase not ring any no, bells? Okay, well, at the time... It wiped it from my memory. Anyway, whatever. So, uh, so the director got in touch and said, you know, thank you for defending my for defending my film against a hostile audience, brackets, and Simon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Sorry about that. No, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a problem. I mean, you know, people, the films divide people. There's many films that I don't like that you like. It's not, you know, it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing. Anyway, Love and Friendship which is based on an early Austin novella. It's put Austin you know, back in the cinemas in a very kind of modern way, and I think done a brilliant job. So now we have uh, Maggie's Plan, which is co-written and directed by Rebecca Miller, who came on the programme, I think, with Daniel Day-Lewis when they had made oh, a yeah, film yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, they did. Okay. Um, so, sorry, Greta Gerwig is the... Um, 
And the reason I mention this is it has a basically a sort of an Austin-like underpinning in a very modern way. That Greta Gerwig is this sort of independent b- b- control freak who likes to organise everything around her, people around her, situations around her. And she has decided she's an academic. She's decided that it is time um, to ha- have a have a baby, but she doesn't want the complication of a relationship. So she's going to go the artificial insemination route. She's got everything planned out, and her friends are sort of wondering, but you know, this everything's so rigid and so strict in her life. But then. Something, a complicating element is thrown into the mix because to her place of work comes Ethan Hawke, who is described as a bad boy of fictocritical anthropology. Hey? Exactly. Here's a clip. It's so funny you know John Harding. Oh, we're on a committee together. He's a real panty melter. Why? Why? Oh, nothing. We just, we had a mix up with our checks because of our names, Harden Harding. Right. He's one of the bad boys of fictocritical anthropology. Apparently, he was a big deal in Chicago. And now he just does adjunct work here, but they're really salivating for him to work full-time. Why won't he? I don't know. I think it has something to do with his wife. Apparently, she's some sort of monster. Where did you hear this? Around. You know, she's got tenure at Columbia. Georgette Nuregard. Uh, the words glacial and terrifying have been bandied about. So you get the kind of the tone of it. So essentially, on there's some people said there's kind of like Woody Allenish vibe to it. I think it is more of a sort of Jane Austen thing. Anyway, so she's planned everything out. She's trying to organise everybody around her. Then the next thing she knows, she sort of winds up having an affair with a married man who apparently has got this terrifying wife played by Julianne Moore. But then, as things move on, you realise that nothing is as simple as it seems. And anybody who, like Emma, decides that what they can do is plan out everybody else's life ends up realising that not only can they not plan anybody else's life, but they can't plan their own either. What I liked about this film was, firstly, I thought it was really well played. I thought that uh, Greta Gerwig was very convincing as this person who got everything neat, everything tidy, everything in order, and yet, actually, underneath, there is this disorder. The tone of the dialogue reminded me, I mean, this is not just because of Ethan Hawke, but there is something of that, you know, before sunrise, before sunset, the kind of the conversation flows very naturally, and yet, all the way through, there's this very arch parody of the intelligentsia and the kind of conversations that those people have which I thought was very well observed and very funny Um, but more importantly it's a film which both observes and completely throws out the rules of romantic comedy I mean romantic comedies you know the old romantic comedies the thing when anything would end with a wedding this is a the kind of film that says that marriage is not the solution to anything or the end of anything and it is a film in which it is very very fluid and open-minded about the way in which people will ultimately organize their lives and what it means to be fulfilled and what it means to be unfulfilled and how friendships can be one thing and something else so it has all these elements going on. And what's most surprising about it is certainly from uh, Rebecca Miller's work before, this has a, a levity and a joy to it, which I hadn't seen uh, in her work before. And I thought it was smart and funny and, I mean, genuinely laugh out loud funny and really likeable characters. And I mention this because weird in a week in which the Neon Demon is out, in which everyone, those emails that you had in which they were all critical, all saying it's all surface, it's all vacuum, it's all style... If you if that sounds to you like something that you're not interested in, then Maggie's plan is is the other side, in which it's all to do with people, real people that you can really believe in in real situations, doing things that are entertaining and funny. Um, personally, I like both of those movies for different reasons. 
if you had to choose, then well, the you'd neon go for dim, the I'd go for the neon dim because that's where I come from. But I, but I really enjoyed Maggie's plan. Bill Milligan and Tom McDonald yes. uh, say it's wider learning week at Isleworth and Science School for Boys in West London. Did okay. you know that? No, I didn't. Well, it is. It's wider learning week, which is essentially an excuse to do things that the kids like to do instead of the things that they don't like to do, like learn anything. <laughs> this week, say Bill and Tom... My colleague and I, have, we've been running Wittertainment Week, during which we have engaged in a whole host of exciting film-based activities with the following three learning objectives. To turn all students into Wittertainees. Very good. Noble. Two, to ensure all students follow the code forever. Excellent. Three, to make a short film, two minutes in length, and of the U certificate following the guidance of your wonderful Well Done You competition. These may be the smartest teachers in the world. Can I ask, are we, is, is Well Done You 3 coming? I know we haven't. I know we haven't had a meeting about this. But well, what's, what is Robin saying? Something in your ear? Yes. What's he's he saying? saying? Get Mark to back off. He's saying at some point. Okay, fine. At some point. Yeah. Okay. It won't be this year because you know there are lots of meetings that have to happen and boxes that need to be ticked. Is that because we benefit financially from it? Absolutely. Okay. Fine. Great for everyone that sent yeah. in. When we introduced them to your witterings at the beginning of the week, there was a lot of stony faced silence, and I don't get this. But one young man did it. <laughs> one young man did admit, in true with nail on holiday style, to have once listened to you by mistake, mistake. in an aunt's car. Very apparently. good. However, today, prior to our trip to the cinema to ensure central intelligence, sorry, to endure. To, uh, to, he, he, no, I like central intelligence. Hang on. He, see, he wrote in saying ensure central intelligence, then realised, being a teacher, that he'd made a mistake and so sent in another one with a correction. So he's corrected his own work. So to endure central intelligence, their choice, outvoting a showing of Hail Caesar by 13 to 5. Oh, that's a shame. We really should have learned not to hold referenda, I think. Say, Bill and Tom, <laughs> that's them, not me. We showed, the, we showed the students the code of conduct. That's democracy for you. Just be careful who you ask yeah. and what the question is. Dep- what you should have done, teachers. give people the right to vote. Teachers, you should say, guess choose. what? What film do you want to see? Do you want to see the same film as me? Good, because that's the choice that you yeah, got. very good. No, the choice is, do you want to see Hail Caesar or not? Anyway, we showed the students the code of conduct. Their reaction suggests that they're now slowly converting to the church. One lad offered the opinion... They're actually quite funny, these men. Although he was speaking like an old man. So if we're aiming for full conversion, I would wager that a was-up and an everything's going to be okay to Mr. McDonnell and Mr. Milligan's Year 9 Wider Learning Week filmmaking class, it would just about do the trick. With thanks for giving us the conceptual framework for our week of doing things that we love too. Bill Milligan and Tom McDonnell. I think this should be like a law that everyone should have a wider learning week where you just do wittertainment-related activities. Yes. Because we can go on forever. On the, and just before the DVD We can, we can do week, another film. Oh, OK. Here we go, we've got a whole other film to do. Oh, OK. You're not going anywhere in a hurry, matey oh, boy. Okay, right. I might clear up. What, what's, what's no, don't, on? because we've got... It's Wiener. I don't know anything about that. Is that Wiener Herzog? Wiener. A okay. Film, a film, hold, hold that up again. Oh, oh, the film by Josh Creekman and Elise. More importantly, the documentary about Anthony Weiner. Okay, Anthony Weiner, young congressman, um, who uh, oh, was him, the guy who did the photos. Of his and there ha- we go. And his suddenly, his house, your, his and house suddenly, your father. <laughs> thank you very they much. They should have called it Mister Happy. That's they should, what they should have done. <laughs> I think that was a working title, yeah. actually. Okay, so um, so you are familiar with this story. I because I live in a bubble. Um, was not familiar with no, this story. I am familiar with okay, this. Okay, so tell me what you remember about this, about his Well, story. I remember how hilarious to have uh, a man who uh, was, ne- who sent photographs of his Mr. Happy, and he's called Wiener. 
Fine. Which, in, of course, in American, it means Mr. Happy. Thank you. OK, fine. So it's like over here if he was called John Thomas or something like that. You yeah. know, yeah. Or Dr. Todger. <laughs> Dr. They'll take that out. <laughs> no, I think they'll probably leave that in. So, anyway, the documentary... Um, begins when what's happened is you know he had this this political career and everything was going great and he was you know he's an interesting guy he believed in a lot of really really interesting things and then he torpedoed his career by sexting i think is the phrase or messaging um pictures of his pants um to what that's what happened to uh, to very it wasn't his pants that were the problem was it really i know you know what I mean. Um, and this became a scandal and, uh, you know, did his career terrible damage. So the documentary then picks up a couple of years later. He's running for mayor of New York City and, you know, changed man and has got his life together and has obviously offered the documentary crew access to his personal and, you know, private and public life and all the rest of it to follow him around in this campaign. And he believes in a lot of interesting things and uh, he has his fantastic wife, Ahim Abedin, who is uh, an aide to uh, Hillary Clinton and he's clearly a smart guy and, uh, you know, there is footage of him on television arguing very convincingly for, you know, kind of things that I believe in and then it happens again. They suddenly discover story breaks in the press that actually it's happened again, that there are more photographs and there are more sexting messages that is happened. It, is it the same photographs of a... It's different. A, it's different. Fo- well, okay, different so, incident. Do you want to hear a clip? Yeah. Okay, so this is him talking to his PR person who's trying to assess just how bad the problem is that they're dealing with. Can I just say multiple people or is it just this one? I think you've got it. I mean, there was more than one, so I think... <laughs> I think we've got to answer the question. The problem was that the series of interviews that I did when I got in the race were after this. And people asked me, is the number still the same? I think I said to six to Dominic, and then I cleaned it up in subsequent interviews because I knew that was a problem. Questions: Do we answer it or not? I think we have to answer these questions. I think we have to answer because if somebody else comes out, we don't. So okay, so I'm going to give me the answer. So, so I'm going to say yes. Um, it was more than one. Do you believe you're suffering from any sort of addiction? So you get the sense of, like, you're right there in the middle of crisis control as all this stuff is and all, breaking. And turning left, clearly. Turning left, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the documentary is fairly sort of compulsive viewing um, for a number of reasons. One of them is, firstly, because they're right there when this, when this story is breaking around. Them. The documentary obviously kind of begins as a story of rehabilitation, a story of somebody who's the serious issues that they were dealing with were completely suddenly sideswiped by the fact that not only had this thing happened, but his name is Anthony Weiner, and therefore he became the punchline of a joke. And there is a question about, you know, would, would could you could you elect a punchline to the role of mayor? But then the fact that what this then does is sort of play out again, and we get this horrible kind of slow motion car crash repetition of what happened before. And at one point, there's a sort of it's a lot of you know investigation of soul searching about why this has happened and the fact that he won't stop he carries on he says I'm not backing away from this I'm going to carry on and he does indeed carry on and uh, you know goes through this second uh, humiliation uh, as indeed does his wife who is standing by him while this is happening while he's becoming kind of again laughing stock somebody who is vilified um, for you know for his conduct and 
there's a moment in it in which he wonders whether or he attempts to explain away his behavior by saying that part of what makes him able to do what he does you know to speak on television and to stand for all these because is is the same part of him that makes him this other person that does this other stuff and it's it's a kind of it's a a fascinatingly i mean there are times that it's it's really hard to watch because it's quite skin crawlingly embarrassing when you know because of this situation that he has put himself in and that he somehow doesn't appear to have a sort of proper comprehension of how on earth this stuff happened and yet trying to explain it by saying part of part of what makes me this is what makes me that and then being right in the middle of that huddle as you go through it i mean i thought it was a, a fascinating i said i knew nothing about the subject matter before because i live in a total bubble um but it is a sort of I was thinking about it in terms of... You remember the John Ronson book that you and I both read recently and liked, you know, So You've Been Publicly Shamed? It it was an element of that, but there was also an element of what kind of what kind of mindset do you have to be in that would enable you to weather this storm, but also enable it to happen in the first place? I mean, you just, you know, you go, have you learned nothing? And uh, also this kind of very strange inability to answer a straight question and and how they think we, we, from that clip anyone's going to think if you say more than one that that's going to be any yeah exactly and that's why six. that's why that clip is so because it's all she's trying to do is get an answer out of him about what it is and there's one point in which she's prepping him for uh because she's she's trying to she's trying to assess where the situation is, and his campaign team feel terribly let down by the fact that this has happened, and as indeed um, his you know his his wife, and uh, uh, she's she's trying to assess it, and she asks him a question, he's rehearsing an answer, and she says, well, what should I tell them? And he says, well, I'm telling I'm telling you the answer, I'm speaking words now, this is the answer, but it's so incomprehensible that you can't tell. What, I mean. Sometimes you end up watching it through your fingers because of the embarrassment of the situation. But it is a fascinating portrait of a self-destructive urge in the middle of all this stuff. And it also becomes something greater, which is a, a debate about how much anybody's private life does or doesn't matter in terms of their political life. Uh, okay. So actually, that sounds as though, even though it's about American politics is going to be quite an interesting... I think so, It's almost like an episode from The West Wing or The Good Wife or something like that. Yeah, I I mean, I thought it was... And I said I knew knew nothing about it before, but I did. I I watched it, particularly as we get into the end sections. You just... There's there's one moment in it in which he's he's had a a public appearance in a a deli or a grocery or something. And as he's... And it's all gone quite well. He doesn't there, does he? Pardon me? No, no, no. And as he's leaving somebody says you're a disgrace or something like that and rather than just carrying on walking out of the store he turns around and then has a stand-up row with this guy and then suddenly it becomes a new, it's it's like he can't not do it what happens to him then well he then has a stand-up row that's then no, video what I mean is, he presumably he doesn't win well that's a matter of history Simon, but i don't want to i don't want to give away a plot spoiler but you could always look it up. You could always look it up. Um, before we go, Alex Wilson, um, I'd love to. Th- I'd love for you to give a hearty what's up to my good friend and colleague Laura. We're both teachers and came to realise our shared passion for your docile tones. In the staff room, when, as she was leaving, paintbrush in hand, I mentioned to her that I'd been to see Pixar's Inside Out. Oh yeah, okay. which I loved, 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 and, loved. Ho- and hoped it would be considered for Best Picture at the Oscars. She turned, smiled knowingly, and exclaimed, "That would be the first time for any animation." Since then, we've regularly been exchanging hello, Jasons, down the corridors, much to our students' confusion. 
Uh, I'm moving to teach in Brazil next week. I would like to thank Laura for being such a good friend and for being the only other Wittitani at school because we checked via the unaffiliated app. She's an inspirational artist and I wish her all the best back in Blighty. So thank you very much indeed. Thank That's you. Nice. Should we do DVD of the week? Yeah, shall we? We, we shall, yes. <laughs> you were waiting for that, weren't you? It's the music that indicates that we're doing it whether we want to or not. That's a kind of Christoph Waltz laugh. Waltz! For baby soft skin, apply the rough end of a DVD case twice daily. Has this been approved? When it slowly starts to penetrate the epidermis, that's when you know that your skin will have that smooth, if slightly bloody feel that will make your friends so, so envious. Your DVD case will then be slightly crusty, so it'll be time to replace it with yet another DVD. I think we've got a different scriptwriter this week. And if you are looking to purchase a DVD, Blu-ray, Betamax or Laserdisc this coming Monday, which one should you pick? Mark Kermode is in fact 68, but doesn't look a day over 53 because of this high-energy regime. What is he going to pick? Well, let's see your suggestions. Jimmy Fletcher. I'm not sure what Mark thinks of crimes of passion, but I'd be interested to hear his thoughts on it. Speak those thoughts, Mark. Don't make me read them. I can't read thoughts. Rob Diston, I think Mark is about to go for Hail Caesar, which I still need to see, so that will be a rental along with a couple in a hole in Highlander. My pick will be Andre Rublev. Uh, Keith Fraser, isn't it obvious that there can only be one? Sharpen your oversized sword, wire it up to a car battery for a maximum dramatic sparking, brush off your trench coat, take a break on sacred ground to practice your Franco-Scottish accent, crank the Queen's soundtrack up to 111 for most of the 80s, 80s movies. The only one that counts, it is Highlander. There can be only one. What's Mark going to pick as DVD of the week? Well, Hail Caesar... (laughs) I mean, I, I, I'll tell you why. I watched Hail Caesar the other day uh, for my birthday. With the did wear so simple. With the, exactly, exactly. And because uh, the rest of the family hadn't seen it. And uh, when we had, for Father's Day, we watched Minions. And uh, so for my birthday, we watched Hail Caesar because I thought it's something that the whole family can enjoy. And the house veritably rocked with laughter. Because it is really genuinely funny. And I know a lot of people, you know, wrote in and didn't like it and didn't think it was funny. Believe me, you're wrong. It is really properly funny. The wood that it was so simple. Wood that it was. My dear boy, why do you say it like that? Wood that it was so simple, trippingly. Wood that it was so simple, trippingly. Don't say trippingly. It's amazing you can do both characters all at once. You can do both of them. Mr. Laurent. Yeah, anyway, so I think it's I think it's lovely. I love the, the musical numbers. I think the, you know, the On the Town sequence is brilliant. Uh, I thought that Tilda Swinton in both roles as the I'm not a gossip columnist was really, really funny. I just, I just loved it. And, uh, and I laughed all the way through. And I want people to see it and enjoy it and love it as much as I do. And that is our uh, DVD of the week. And that's it. Thank you very much, Dee, for listening. Uh, can I just say, Mark, before we finish? Yes. You're looking fabulous. Fantastic. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.